Welcome to Feed the Sheep Podcast. This is your host, Ross Steele. As I always say, God is good all the time, and all the time, the devil is stupid. Here, I like to talk about things culture doesn't want to talk about. I talk about things to advance the gospel, to build the kingdom, and bless the world. Let's get right to it. All righty. This is not a new voice that you will hear. Uh, it's your boy, Ross Steele. As you already know from the awesome intro, um, but a, uh, a familiar voice for those who have listened to session or season one of Feed the Sheep podcast, we had Marcus DePeel actually come uh, and speak for our fifth session, speaking on a heavy topic of anxiety, depression, uh, suicide, stuff like that. So as you, we ended season one with him, well, he's back. And this time, he was back at Revision 22. Dear Lord, thank you for the heart, the passion that you have given, Marcus, uh, for this generation, for, for, for this illness, Lord, that, that you can come uh, against God. We believe that. And I just pray that we may be able to submit all of our, our, our thoughts, all of our actions, Lord. May we submit it all to you. Let you fight the battles for us, God. And may we recognize what it is that is in our lives, Lord, and remove it from our lives as needed. I pray that this message reaches a generation, reaches individuals who will hear it and will change their life and therefore generations to come lives uh, just by your goodness and how your spirit moves, Lord, or recognize that your spirit moves in this place and in, in this car, in these in these headphones, Lord, whatever it may be, God, I pray that your spirit just be there with these who are listening today. It's in your name that I pray these things. Amen. All right. As I said, familiar voice, Marcus DePeel brings it for session five of Revision 2022. All right, let's see. Can y'all hear me? Yes. Can y'all hear me? Yes. All right, that's a little bit better. How you guys doing? Good. All right, we'll try that one more time. How you guys doing? Good. All right, that's dope. That's dope. Um, well, I, I know uh, last night I was able to be here uh, for both sessions, and I know we just had an amazing time uh, together last night. I wasn't able to be here uh, this morning. I have some family actually in town, and right after this I got a jet, because it's uh, my niece is having a one-year-old birthday party, and apparently that's a very big deal, and you can't miss that when you're an uncle, so I will have to get out of here uh, shortly, uh, but I'm very, very excited for that. But I don't want to miss this moment, and I'm really pumped to be here with you guys, so I just want to say thank you uh, for having me. And having said that, can we just give it up real quick for the team that put this whole thing on? It's been an amazing weekend so far. Um, you guys have done an awesome job uh, putting this together. So I just want to say thank you uh, to everyone uh, that's had a hand in it. Uh, just real quick, a little bit about me. Uh, like she said, my name is Marcus DePeel. And for the last four years, uh, I was a pastor actually at a church here in the Indianapolis area and had the privilege of running a college and young adult ministry that I actually had a hand um, in kind of launching and getting off the ground while I was in college. And then that kind of became my first thing uh, that I was doing right out of the gate when I entered into full-time ministry. 
and uh, had a blast doing it for quite a while. It was a great time. And uh, actually, when Ross got in touch with me about coming to this conference, being at Revision, I was really excited. Uh, but I was also in a bit of a, a tricky spot. Um, I was kind of contemplating at the time that he reached out to me whether or not I was going to take a break from full-time ministry or if I was going to kind of keep my head down, uh, push through the season that I was in, or if I needed to rest. And uh, I'm going to share a little bit more about this as we go, but I was kind of dealing with, to be quite honest, I was dealing with some mental health struggles at the time, and that's what we're going to chat about quite a bit this afternoon, um, and I ended up making the decision uh, at the end of, of April to step out of ministry uh, in the full-time capacity and just trust God with some sort of season of healing and rest for myself. So with that said, I wasn't entirely sure, you know, once I stepped out of full-time ministry, I'm like, what, a, what message does somebody like me that just said, hey, I need a break? I need to slow down, I need to rest. I'm honestly, to be transparent, I'm not doing very well. Like what does someone like me have to offer a group like you? And I remember praying about it and thinking about it and just genuinely before God, like I don't think I have anything to say right now. And I just very gently felt the Holy Spirit nudge me like you need to share that. Just share your experience, share where you have been and what you have walked through and to look at the scriptures together. So today what I want to do, I know that everything up until this point has been, uh, it's been pretty hype. It's been pretty energetic. I know we've had Morgan up here bouncing around like just crazy. I, I respect it, dude. I love it. Uh, but I also know that there are moments in life where you don't feel like bouncing around where that's just not where you're at, if we're being honest. And I want to talk a little bit about today, what does it look like to handle some of those incredibly difficult moments that we are all bound to face in life? What do we do when we hit those valleys of things like anxiety, depression, panic, when tragedy or trauma strikes in some way? And how does that, how, how do we stay consistent in our faith while also being honest and acknowledging where we're really at? And that's what we're going to do um, today. So if you're an optimist and you hate like engaging deep emotion, maybe now's a great time to go to the bathroom and just like sneak out for this session. I don't know. Uh, I promise I'll do my best to keep it light, but we're also going to be very real together. Is that okay? Uh, so what I want to do here on the front end, I'm going to go ahead and just say a word of prayer for us, and then we're going to jump into the word together. So would you bow your heads with me as we pray? Lord, I just thank you for this moment. I thank you for the opportunity to be here, for your grace to get myself and everyone in this room uh, to this, this place today. And like Mackenzie said, I know that uh, we all have a story of how we got here. Some of us are just riding absolute spiritual highs on our way into this conference, and we praise you for that, and we thank you for that. Those seasons are beautiful. And others of us are, are coming in, myself included, kind of, we've just been dragging. It's not been easy. We've, we've kind of seen some of the darkest, the darkest days as of late. And Lord, we just, we trust you with that. And we bring that into this room as well. And some of us kind of find ourselves in a weird in-between. Things haven't been great. They haven't been awful. We almost just feel like we've hit a plateau. Maybe we're a little bit numb. And we just acknowledge that. And God, we thank you that no matter where we come in at, we can pursue you. We can call on your name. And more than anything else, that you can speak to us and you can speak to our situations. You can speak to our joy. You can speak to our heartache. And you can even speak to the numb areas of our lives. 
So we just ask this, this afternoon, Lord, that your spirit would reign supreme, that you would speak very clearly, and that you would whisper things to our hearts that we've been longing to hear. It's in your name we pray. Amen. Amen. Uh, just FYI, uh, I'm not going to have any slides for us today, so I kind of want us to like be engaged right here. All right, I'm going to need you to listen closely, um, and right now I'm going to need you to open up your Bibles, which is probably not going to be paper for a lot of you. So go ahead and pull out your phone, open up that Bible app, whatever you do in that regard. Uh, we're going to be looking at John chapter 20, verses uh, 24 to 29. John chapter 20, verses 24 uh, to 29. And while you're doing that and getting that pulled up, what I love to do before I dive into a text is give a little bit of context about what's going on in a passage like that. Uh, so in this passage that we're about to read, it comes right near the end of the gospel narrative as a whole. John 20, you can kind of imagine, okay, we're getting close to the end of the book, right? So initially, as the book of John opens, you have the Word becoming flesh in John chapter 1, where Jesus is born to the Virgin Mary as God comes to dwell amongst men. Then you have the boy Jesus growing up and becoming a man, a man who becomes a rabbi and chooses 12 other young men to follow him and to learn from him. And over the course of many chapters, Jesus is teaching the crowds and teaching his 12 disciples, building relationships with them over post-miracle meals, which I just have to imagine were some of the best-tasting meals of all time. Like, you know, we just saw a blind dude see, like, this food's about to taste pretty good. I just have a feeling, right? So you got these post-miracle meals, campfires at night. I have to imagine Jesus is just cracking jokes left and right. After three years of life together, one of those 12 men that Jesus picked to walk with him betrays him, selling him out to the religious leaders who want him dead, and Jesus is sentenced to a horrific death, death on a cross. He's publicly crucified and then buried in a tomb with his followers full of grief and empty of hope for three unimaginably long days. But as the story goes, three days later, the greatest miracle ever takes place. Jesus raises himself from the dead by the power of the Holy Spirit and then begins presenting himself to his followers. And after showing himself to the women at the tomb and ten of his disciples, there's one more disciple that Jesus needs to see. And that's where our passage comes in. John 20, 24 to 29, and I'll be reading from the NLT today. It says, one of the twelve disciples, Thomas, nicknamed the twin, was not with the others when Jesus came. They told him, we have seen the Lord, but he replied, being Thomas, I won't believe it unless I see the nail wounds in his hands. Put my fingers into them and place my hand into the wound in his side. Eight days later, the disciples were together again, and at this time, Thomas was with them. The doors were locked, but suddenly, as before, Jesus was standing among them, which I got to say is probably the most overrated verse in Scripture. It's like all the doors are locked, and then he's just casually there out of nowhere. Like, that's a little creepy, dude. I'm just saying. And Jesus breaks the ice with, peace be with you. Imagine, like, somebody just sliding through locked doors and saying that to you. I, I don't know. That's just kind of, all right. Peace be with you, Jesus said. Then he said to Thomas, put your finger here and look in my hands. Put your hand into the wound in my side. Don't be faithless any longer. Believe. My Lord and my God, Thomas exclaimed. Then Jesus told him, you believe because you have seen me. Blessed are those who believe without seeing me. 
This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. So I want to tell you just real quick a little bit about how I came, uh, came to Jesus. So I was raised in a pastor's home, which typically means that you come to Jesus as soon as you're born. Uh, but, you know, those of us who are PKs, we know that there's always got to be some other moment a little bit later in life where it becomes very real for yourself because you can't just be, you know, mom and dad's little good PK. You got to actually like, have, have the moment, right? And so uh, when I was 16 years old, to be transparent, I was like running from the Lord as fast as I could. I was like Usain Bolt it the other direction, right? And uh, to be honest, I, I had just gotten to a point where I was really, uh, I was resenting being born into a pastor's home. Um, I was a, an athlete. I was kind of, you know, your classic jock who's kind of popular at school, but I was a good kid, quote unquote. I always like really wanted to sin and be cool, but I was never like strong enough to do it because uh, I was like, mom and dad are going to find out and I'm going to get in massive trouble and I don't really want to do that. So I was like, which pretty much my heart posture was already sinful, but you know, that is what it is. I was kind of like, I, I want to be bad, but I shouldn't be. I know better, but that sounds fun, all that type of stuff. And when I was 16, I found out that I was going to have to move halfway through high school. I was going to have to move half, uh, from western Pennsylvania to south central Michigan in Battle Creek. And I was, to say the least, uh, very ticked off. It felt like God had been controlling my life from day one out of the womb. Can do this, can't do this, can do this, can do this. Got all these extra rules, especially as a pastor's kid. And it was like, man, I'm a good kid. I try to do everything right. And now you're going to move me away from my sports teams. I mean, I was starting varsity in sports. I had a girlfriend. I had a bunch of friends. Like, I was popular in my school. And now I got to go start everything over again. Like, you got to be kidding me, dude. So I was super mad. And at the end of my sophomore year, we load up the truck. We move everything to Michigan. And my parents, when we get there, want me to go to the new youth group. And I'm just going to be completely honest. That was the last place I wanted to go after we moved. It was like, I didn't want to move in the first place. I don't like being a pastor's kid. I'm running away from the Lord. You guys don't really know about that. But I don't really like God all that much. And you want me to go to youth group as my first act here? Like, that's a pass for me. And they were doing all this convincing, all this bribing. And I just got to be, again, a little transparent. Uh, a big reason I didn't want to go to youth group as well is my experience with youth group was just very, very bad up until that point. Now, when I say bad, I mean uh, I lived in a very rural town in Pennsylvania, and our youth group was about 8 to 10 kids. And there were no other athletes in the entire youth group. And I, I promise you, I did not know it was possible to be a devout Christian and a good athlete. I just was not aware of that. And so I was like, apparently I can't be, you know, I can't be a Christian because I like sports and I'm good at them, but I, I don't know if you can be, you know, a Christian athlete. And I also had never met, uh, forgive me, this is 16-year-old me talking, at the time I had never met a girl my age who loved Jesus and was cute. I did not know that cute Christian girls existed. I thought they were completely foreign. And so I was like, well, apparently I can't marry anybody attractive if I'm going to be a Christian because those don't exist either. And so I'm this 16-year-old. It's like, I can't have friends like me, and I can't marry anybody that I think is cute. This is just like, this is tragic. Why would anyone want to be a Christian? This is the worst. And so my parents are like bribing me to try and go to youth group. They end up bringing the youth pastor over to our house. They bring a small group leader. They're like, man, you should come. I promise you, like, it's going to be better than your last youth group. And I'm like, no, this sounds sus. I've been here before, not doing it right. So eventually I, I give in. It's like, fine, I'll go. I'll go. And uh, I roll up to youth group. 
And to my surprise, uh, I walk up, and the youth actually at this church, way bigger church, they have their own building, okay? So you got the church, and you got like this whole youth center. And I'm like, okay, this is kind of sick. And I walk up, and the first person I see is this, uh, this greeter outside the door who is this very cute 16-year-old girl. And she's like, hi, what's your name? And I was like, okay, this is interesting. <laughs> I haven't, haven't seen this before. And, you know, we kind of get over the niceties, all that stuff, and I keep making my way inside. And I'm like, all right, it's maybe, maybe not so bad. We'll see. We'll see. Jury's still out. Make my way inside, and there's a bunch of, a bunch of guys inside on a full-length basketball court playing basketball. And, like, you know, a lot of stuff that I'd gone to, again, with, with different Christians shooting basketballs, they had very goofy-looking jump shots. They weren't very athletic, all that type of stuff. I'm just, again, I'm being transparent. 16-year-old me, I've changed, all right? But I walk in, and these guys are playing basketball, and I'm like, dang, they actually, like, they know what they're doing. They're setting screens. They're shooting good-looking jump shots. They're making passes. Like, they actually know how to play basketball. And I'm like, all right, maybe this isn't so bad. And then service starts, and the youth pastor gets on stage, and he's like, listen, tonight's going to be a little bit different. I'm not going to preach a message. We all just got back from this big youth camp, and it's testimony night. So we're going to have a bunch of different students get up and share their testimonies of what God did in their hearts at camp. And so, lo and behold, some of these athletic guys get on stage, and some of these cute girls start getting on stage. And people that I feel like, okay, I can, I can relate to you. I, I actually understand what you're saying. They start actually, in, in many ways, preaching my own story to me. Because the truth was, when I found out that I was going to be moving, that sin that I was good enough to stay away from, I kind of dove headfirst into. I did a lot of things that even to this day I'm not super proud of. And uh, they get on stage and they start sharing about how, you know, we went to camp and to be honest, before I got to camp, I was involved in all this kind of sexual promiscuity and I was addicted to pornography. Or someone else gets up and, yeah, we went to camp and before, before we got there, man, I was like, I was partying, I was doing drugs, I was smoking, I was doing this, that, the other thing. Or I was chasing popularity and I compromised everything in my life to try and just be cool. And I heard all these people, very relatable for the first time in my life, basically like preaching the gospel and how they were set free at camp. And for the first time in my life, I was like, man, like I know I've grown up in a pastor's home, but I've never heard it quite like this. And like, I, I want that too for myself. And I share this story to say, I didn't want to go to youth group that night whatsoever. But that night in and of itself was the catalyst for me giving my life to Jesus confessing all of my sin to friends and my family, which was super awkward. Getting baptized, re-accepting a call to ministry, and that single night is why I am here today standing before you, a night that I didn't want to go to youth group whatsoever. And I share that story to make my first point today, which is this. Never underestimate the importance of being present. Never underestimate the importance of being present. Now the passage that we read earlier comes right on the heels of Jesus appearing to all the disciples for the first time post-resurrection. But the first verse that we read lets us know that Thomas, one of the disciples, Thomas, was not there when Jesus showed up. Now the word doesn't tell us why Thomas wasn't there, which I, I think is kind of interesting. It's possible that Thomas was like taking a sick day, maybe. Maybe he was on vacation, weird time, but maybe. 
Maybe he had a dentist appointment or like his yearly physical, don't know. Technically, it's possible that his alarm didn't go off or he just snoozed like one too many times when you like don't want to go somewhere and so you just snooze, right? However, if we're, you know, being a little bit more serious, it's far more likely that Thomas was upset, discouraged, and confused that his mentor and his best friend had just died. It's far more likely that Thomas had some kind of tendency to isolate himself from community in the midst of grief instead of leaning into the people that loved him. And if that's the case, I have a feeling that a lot of us in this room can identify with why Thomas wasn't there that day and can identify with how Thomas chose to handle his pain. You see, while Thomas was probably laying in bed and scrolling social media hoping that it would make him feel better, his friends were coming together like they always had. They were probably still crying, still yelling, voicing all their own doubts and questions about what all had gone down the last several days as Jesus had been crucified, not to mention sharing a fear of what might happen to them now that Jesus was gone. But they had each other something Thomas didn't have in that moment. And miraculously, in the midst of what was likely a very grim meal and a grim gathering for these disciples, Jesus appears on the scene in a new body with his old scars, and they enjoy a moment together before Jesus disappears again for eight days. Then I want you to imagine these guys, these disciples who have hung out with Jesus, obviously, but hung out with Thomas, too. I mean, these guys have spent the last three years of life together. It's like, imagine, like, your college friends, in a sense, right? Imagine these people that you've done life with, and you've been hanging out in dorm rooms, and going on camping trips, and maybe even going on vacations with. Like, imagine these guys trying to come up and tell Thomas about it. Matthew starts out, I mean, Thomas, dude, you won't, you won't believe what just happened. This is insane. Jesus showed up while we're eating. He's not dead. He rose from the grave dude it's it's wild then all of a sudden James jumps in dude seriously like he still had all the nail marks in his hands he had all this stuff going on even the wound in his side like I'm telling you bro it's it's nuts and then for some reason I think of Bartholomew as like the really nerdy guy the group like got his shirt tucked in like the broken glasses all taped together and stuff and Bartholomew is just like yeah dude like you won't believe it man he like just we had all the doors locked and he just showed up in the middle of the room and all the other guys are like okay bro that's like definitely gonna push it over the edge you don't have to just say that that's super weird Right, but you have all these guys trying to explain it to Thomas. And why is all this important? Why does being present matter so much? Because for these ten, being present opened up the possibility of seeing a miracle. Simply being present, simply showing up, opened up the possibility of seeing a miracle. But for Thomas, isolating himself shut the door on the impossible. So just simply making the decision to be present, it opened up the possibility of seeing a miracle. Jesus shows up, they're there, they don't miss it. Thomas, isolating himself, shuts the door, misses an opportunity to see the impossible. And I'd have to imagine there's probably somebody in the room today, like just transparent, you didn't want to show up to this. Somebody made you came, somebody like, hey, dude, I, I want to go to this. I know that you're not really into it, but like I need somebody to go with, so I'm not, I don't want to be awkward in social situations, have to make friends, just come with me so I can like sit in the back, right? Like I'm sure somebody here today, just transparent, you didn't want to come. And I just want to let you know, like simply you being present, 
is what opens up the door for you maybe, just maybe, seeing a miracle. When tragedy strikes in our lives of any kind, the enemy wants to take advantage of us when we're in such a vulnerable state. But the enemy's smart. He doesn't do it in this overt, over-the-top sort of way. He's sneaky. As the scripture says, he prowls around like a roaring lion looking for someone to devour. And what the enemy wants us to do in those moments of tragedy, anxiety, or depression is to isolate ourselves like Thomas so our hearts will go, grow cold and hard, numbing the pain we feel with all different types of sin. That's what the enemy wants. And the truth is, the other ten disciples didn't really do anything all that impressive. They didn't really do anything that much better than Thomas. Nothing all that noticeable. They didn't conjure up the presence of Jesus themselves. They didn't have some super faith that made him appear. They didn't worship with their hands in the air instead of in their pockets, and that's why something happened to them. It wasn't what they did all that was like, oh my gosh, it's so impressive. Jesus wanted to show up because of it. Simply put, the only difference is that they continued to show up to meet together, relying on God despite the chaotic circumstances around them, and saw a miracle that Thomas didn't at first. That's why the book of Hebrews is so strong to say, do not forsake the gathering of believers. Because something, just something might happen if you show up. Never underestimate the power and importance of being present. Now I want to get back to the ten. Get back to the ten reporting to Thomas what had happened. James, Peter, nerdy little Bartholomew all telling him how crazy it was. Then let's listen again to the response Thomas gives him. He says, unless I see the nail marks in his hands and put my finger where the nails were and put my hand into his side, I will not believe. This dude is adamant. I do not plan on changing my mind anytime soon. Fair enough. And now this line right here is where Thomas gets his infamous nickname of, does anybody in the room know it? Doubting, Doubting Thomas. But I'm going to advocate today for Thomas having a different nickname. And before I do that, I want to share a little bit more of my own story with you. As you heard me mention in my introduction, I recently, a few months ago, made the decision to take a bit of a break from ministry. And what I didn't uh, share in detail, at least, is why I decided to do that. Uh, in, a, in October of last year, I found myself uh, kind of spiraling, if you will, into a pretty dark season of depression. And to be completely transparent with you, um, throughout all of my life, even my ministry career up until that point, I'd, I'd help pastorally counsel people who were, you know, clinically depressed and who had walked through that stuff, who had massive anxiety. Um, and I'm just, I'm going to level with you guys. I'm almost ashamed to say it, but I, I legitimately thought that people who struggled with depression or severe anxiety were either A, emotionally weak, or be spiritually lazy and immature. Because I was like, it shouldn't be that hard to just like read your Bible, pray, worship, and just like the joy of the Lord is our strength. Like, what's your issue? You know, be happy. Pfft, come on. And it's almost like the Lord had this super sick sense of humor where he's like, man, if that's how you feel, like you, you might need to understand a little bit more. 
Because the truth is, if you've ever been there, I don't know how many of you in this room have ever actually walked through a legitimate depression or a legitimate battle with anxiety that's not just like, oh, I have nerves about public speaking, but like legit, I, I can barely get out of bed, I'm so anxious. Or I can feel like this pressure in my chest, like I feel like I, I need to go to the hospital right now, panic attack of some kind. This stuff is no joke. This stuff is very, very real. And for a few months, I felt, even as a pastor, that it was completely impossible for me to pick up my Bible or to pray. Without going deep into the details, I'll just say this. I had completely lost all trust in God's character and could not believe that God was good for the life of me. Enough had gone on in my life at that point that I was actually convinced that God wasn't just not good, but I legitimately believed that he was actively working against me. Not just that, oh, he's not good to me, but no, he actually has it out for me. I know it sounds a bit funny, especially coming from someone in ministry, but I'm, I'm legit dead serious. I had no idea how to handle all the emotions that I was feeling, and really all I knew to do was just hold them in. Stuff them down, don't acknowledge them, and hope everything at some point will reset. And anybody that has any degree of emotional intelligence or maturity is laughing at me in their head right now because it does not work. But I had many days where I'd have an almost emotionless stare on my face. Unsure if I would just like randomly break down at any moment. Feeling constantly like I was on the verge of either A, just crying, in the middle of a meeting or potentially punching a wall or throwing a chair if I felt like that instead. But it just always felt like these emotions were just like rising up to the surface and all I could ever express was just like blank stare on my face. I wanted to hide, but I was required to get up in front of people on a weekly basis and share things about God that I didn't even think I believed that day. I mean, this was my life for months. And the worst thing about it all was that I felt like I couldn't say it. That I couldn't actually share what was going on with me. That I couldn't be honest about where I was. Yes, I was scared of what people would think. Yes, I was worried that I would be judged, made fun of, possibly even put on some kind of probation or a little sabbatical from ministry. Just like, hey, go get it figured out and then come back when you're better. But the truth is that wasn't the root of the issue. The root of the issue for me was that I felt like if I really acknowledged how I felt before God, that if I really brought my doubts, my questions about his character, and my uncertainty about his goodness to him, that he himself, God, would be angry with me for voicing it. I believed at my core that if I took a much-needed break from ministry, God would actively work to make my life as miserable as he possibly could. I had a picture in my mind of a God who celebrated those with strong faith and condemned those with many doubts. I had a picture in my mind of a God who was quick to punish those who didn't trust him and quick to reward those who were optimistic and hopeful. And my picture of God caused me to spiral further and further and further downward. Now as I share all that with you, which I know is pretty intensely vulnerable, I think there's kind of one of two things that would be true in this moment. The first thing that's possible is that I'm absolutely insane and need to be put in some kind of asylum or of some sort. Technically I have to acknowledge that is a possibility and I, I really hope it's not, but that is a possibility. 
The second possibility, the one that I think is far more likely, is that I'm not alone in having these sorts of thoughts. That I'm not alone in thinking that God is primarily an angry God, ready to punish us when we mess up or have a moment of weakness. That I'm not the only one that sees God as an impatient God, annoyed at how long it's taking me to learn different lessons or trust Him in different areas. That I'm not alone in thinking God isn't a good God trying to bring me more harm than peace. If I had to put money on it, I would bet that there are other people in this room who have had those same exact thoughts, possibly even thinking them right this very moment. And what I needed to learn over the course of what was about six months of very severe depression was this very simple thing right here, that Jesus has far more patience than we have doubts. That Jesus has far more patience than we have doubts. I'm going to be real. This sounds like one of the most elementary points that any speaker has said up here since this conference started. It's insanely basic, and I'm afraid that it might be the one that we all collectively believe the least about God. It's insanely elementary. Oh, Jesus is so patient. Love is patient. Love is kind. He's a patient God. It's like, but do you actually think that when it comes to yourself? If I was a betting man, I'd say you probably don't. Listen, it took me six months of walking through depression, meeting with mentors, and going to counseling to realize that God truly was being unbelievably patient with me, that he was fine with me yelling at him. He was fine with me going to prayer and actually swearing at him and using words I hadn't even said in years, that he was fine with me saying, God, why haven't you been good to me? When I know this, the right thing to say is, oh, he's so good. His goodness is right after me hallelujah and it's like no actually in the car when I would you know walk off stage I would say God why do I feel like you hate me why do I feel like you're trying to ruin my life I know theologically and intellectually that's not true but why emotionally do I feel like you're out to get me why are you making my life a living hell I had to realize that God was patient enough for me to actually bring that stuff to him and engage with him on that level. And I'm here to say, man, that after all those months of all those incredibly dark moments, probably really frustrating prayer times, that number one, I'm still here. And number two, Jesus feels the same way about me today as he did before. That nothing has, can, or will change the way that he feels about me or about you, no matter what it is that you're going through or what you think about him. I can't help but think that someone here today just needs to hear this. The patience of Christ will always outweigh the questions of humanity. The patience of Christ will always outweigh the questions of humanity. And how do I know this? Let's go back to Thomas for a moment. Look at Jesus' response to Thomas's doubts. You got Thomas saying, man, unless I see the nail marks in his hands and put my finger where the nails were, I will not believe. To be quite honest with you, the picture of Jesus that I have in my mind, I would have expected Jesus to yell at a disciple like this. 
Like, bro, where have you been the last three years? Have you not seen me do this? Have you not seen me do this? Have you not? I mean, I've healed everybody we've come into contact with. I have brought an entire gospel of grace and good news and recovery of sight for the blind and on and on and on. My picture of Jesus is one that would yell at Thomas in a moment like this. My picture of Jesus and my expectation would have been, all right, Thomas canceled, you're done, he's gone. Hey, other 10 over here, great job. You shut up to class, Thomas is gone. He's not gonna be with us moving forward. That's my expectation of what Jesus would have done. And you might laugh at me, but the truth is, if you found yourself in Thomas's shoes, you probably expect that's how Jesus would treat you too, is it not? But what does Jesus do? He appears to the disciples again with Thomas there this time. Going back to the first point, guess what Thomas did? He showed up. He was present. Now Jesus doesn't ask Thomas where he was or why he's been doubting. Jesus didn't say, hey, where were you last time, buddy? Where's your doctor's note? What's the deal? You didn't call in. You didn't let me know you were taking off shifts. Like, what's going on? Why, why you been doubting? I hear that you're saying you're not going to trust me. Like, he, that's not Jesus. Doesn't say any of that. Jesus doesn't ask Thomas what he needs. Beautifully enough, Jesus is already very well aware of what Thomas needs. Instead, this is what he does. He looks Thomas deep in the eyes. He communicates love and compassion with his body language and his facial expression. Jesus doesn't have this like scowl on his face like an angry dad. He has a soft smile on his face, just looking across the room at Thomas. And the first words out of his mouth, come over here, I know what you need. Come see my hands. Come look at them, come feel them. Come touch the holes, they're still there, man. Yeah, check it out. Check out my side. It's crazy. It's still the hole in here. It's still the wound right here, Thomas. Come, come see it. Because the crazy thing to me here, man, is that Jesus didn't have to, like, he didn't have to ask any questions. Thomas didn't have to say anything. Because I would expect if Jesus isn't going to speak first, that Thomas would speak first and he would say, listen, I was telling these guys, I need to see this. He already knows. He already knows exactly what it's going to take for Thomas to trust him. And so he just says very simply, come here, let me show you. And I can't help but wonder, man, if in a room like this, there's somebody in here that you just desperately need Jesus to show up and say, hey, come here. I know what you need. Let me prove it to you. I'm still good. I'm still alive. I'm still worth trusting. And by the way, I know you didn't show up last time. And by the way, I know you have a ton of doubts. And by the way, I know you've been depressed. I'm not mad at you. I'm not here to lay into you. I'm not here to punish you. I want to prove to you how good I am, how real I am, how alive I am. I can't help but wonder if there's somebody in the room that needs to even touch the wounds of Jesus today. You see, Jesus isn't angry. He's not angry and he's not scared of Thomas's doubts. He welcomes them. He invites his doubts in so that he can prove them wrong. He knew that Thomas's doubts didn't need to be condemned but cared for. Jesus knows, listen, Jesus knows that it is not easy 
to believe and to trust him when we experience tragedy. And he's patient enough to prove himself to us at our lowest points. He's a patient, patient God. Jesus has far more patience than we have doubts. And I mentioned earlier, as we wind down, I mentioned earlier that I wanted to give Thomas a better nickname today than Doubting Thomas. And the nickname I would give him instead is very simply Honest Thomas. Not Doubting Thomas, Honest Thomas. The reason I'd give him this nickname first is because I really just genuinely don't like identifying someone by their lowest moment. Not a big fan of that. I can only imagine if we were all like identified with our sin and giving nicknames with our sin, that'd be really awkward. We'd have a bunch of like gossiping Britneys, lustful Justins, and gluttonous Brads in the room, and that just doesn't sound like nicknames I'd really jive with. Like, I don't know about you. Like, that's not cool with me. Like, I don't want to be like, oh yeah, greedy Marcus, this guy. Like, no, I'm, I'm good. Like, please no. But the second reason that I call him Honest Thomas is that I think the honesty and the courage of Thomas in this moment is severely underrated. You see, when I was depressed, I'd have people ask me all the time, how are you doing today? How's it going? How's life treating you? And guess what my response was every single time? Good. I'm fine. Yeah, I'm doing well. Life's been good. It's a little crazy ups and downs. I mean, you know how it is. We all go through stuff. Man, it's, it's chill. Like, that's all we ever say. No one ever says, hey, how you doing? And you're like, bad, horrible. I hate my life. I didn't want to get up today. Like, have you ever said that? If you did, like, number one, socially you broke every rule out there in the game. Like, and, and two, like, who wants to do that? Nobody wants to say that. Nobody wants to be honest in these moments. And so I honestly think that when these guys come up to Thomas and they're saying, hey, like, Jesus is back. He rose from the grave, dude. You won't believe it. It's crazy. Like, there's still the nail scars in his hands. Bartholomew's like, yeah, he showed up like a ghost. All this stuff. Like, I actually respect and appreciate the courage of Thomas to say, I highly doubt it. I think it takes a crap ton. Can I say that? Like, a crap ton of courage to say, I'm going to be transparent. I don't believe it. Not today. That's scary to say that. Anybody in the room while we're singing these songs like really want to get on stage and saying, yeah, I don't feel that way today. Like anybody in the room want to volunteer to come do that? No. Nobody wants to. It takes courage to have that level of honesty. Thomas was just a real dude. He was the type of guy like what you see is what you get with this guy. And how do I know this? Because as soon as Jesus proves himself to Thomas, the switch up is unbelievable. Instead of more doubt, Thomas jumps straight into one of the most profound proclamations ever recorded in scripture. My Lord and my God. That's quite the 180 from a week ago when he said, unless I see, I won't believe. You're talking about like the Scrooge sitting in the back of the church, no chance, all of a sudden coming up, both hands in the air, my Lord and my God. And what a lot of us don't know about this proclamation is this is the first time in history that Jesus was ever referred to as someone's Lord and someone's God. He'd been referred to as Messiah, referred to as acknowledged as the Son of God, but no one had ever actually called Jesus, you are my Lord, my God. As we talked about last night, Jesus is Lord. The first person to ever say that for themselves, doubting Thomas. Not, that's not accurate. This is honest Thomas. 
This is courageous Thomas. This is bold Thomas. And why was he able to switch up to that degree, going from unless I see it to probably the greatest proclamation of faith in the history of Scripture? The reason is this. A confident testimony requires an authentic struggle. A confident testimony requires an authentic struggle. Listen, man, I am convinced that the only way we can ever share our own testimony from a place of confidence and a place of power is if we are willing to be authentic about the struggles that we have as Christians. I'm going to be super transparent and get really upset for a moment because that's just what I do. I cannot stand some of the culture that we have where we have to act like absolutely everything's perfect all the time. I cannot stand it. Because here's the deal. Probably like 40% of our lives is us figuring out what in the world is going on. There's a huge chunk of our lives where we are saying, I'm confused, I don't understand, I don't feel good, I emotionally feel all over the place, I don't trust anyone or anything right now, I haven't read my Bible in the last week because I don't know how to feel about God, I'm just not there today. And for some reason, we live in a culture, even within the church, where it's not okay to say that. And we wonder why we have such a hard time bringing people to Jesus. It's not that confusing because we don't ever talk about the worst parts of following him. Because we don't ever talk about the moments where we struggle. Because we don't ever talk about authentically the things that we are having an incredibly hard time with. We don't talk about with non-believers about the fact that, yeah, man, like I stay up in bed late at night sometimes, questioning everything, wondering what, like, is God still real? And then, yeah, like he's proven himself time and time again, but I'm not perfect and I'm very broken and I still have those moments. We don't talk about with non-believers, like, yeah, I still wrestle with anxiety. I still feel depressed at certain times. I still walk through incredibly hard seasons, and God's been faithful over the years, but I'm really struggling right now. How much more powerful of a witness do you think it is to people that don't yet believe when you can be honest and say it's not all sunshine and rainbows? And how much more confident will you be on a mountaintop when you are honest with yourself, with others, and with God himself at your lowest. Because when you walk through a valley, but you do it pretending the whole time that you're okay, the mountaintop genuinely just doesn't feel quite as good. But when you're in the valley of the shadow of death, and you're looking straight at Jesus and other Christians, and you're saying, man, this sucks. Nothing makes sense right now. I'm opening up my Bible, and I don't trust a word that I'm reading. I, I'm like, something broke. I don't know what the deal is. How much more powerful and how much more confidence do you think you're going to have in your own story and testimony about God's goodness? When you can say, that's where I really was, and this is where I am today. There's a reason Thomas was the one to say, my Lord and my God, because he had some questions. Maybe some questions the other ten were wrestling with and they weren't strong enough to admit. But Thomas was straight up. I need him to prove it. 
Is that the best way? Not necessarily. Did Jesus even say next thing? Yeah, it's better to do it the other way if you can? Sure. But I'll tell you one thing. Jesus was patient with Thomas. He loved on Thomas. And in the end, he was unbelievably proud of Thomas. And I just got to bet that today there's at least one person in here that just needs to get real about where you're at. If you're on a mountaintop and everything is great, God bless you. And I'm not here to shame that, genuinely. That's not sarcasm. Those moments are so special and cherish it and enjoy it. But if you're somebody today that's coming in and saying, like, to be honest, yeah, I'm in a valley. Nothing makes sense. Like, yeah, we're singing these songs and I'm trying to vibe and all this type of stuff, but to be real, I'm like starting to think about the words and shoot, like, or man, like I'm hearing these sermons and yeah, like I know Jesus is Lord, but like, I just, I, I have too many questions. I need him to prove some things to me. I need to touch. I need to see for myself. I just want to encourage you, like take a step of courage and faith and just admit what your doubts are. And church, can we just agree that we're going to be a place that's not going to condemn when people have doubts, but we will care for those and shepherd those and steward those and not look down on those people like, oh my gosh, here they go again. And instead say like, what do you need? How can I help? How can I come alongside you? And to be a place where it's okay to ask questions and be a place where it's okay to have doubts, depression, anxiety. We don't want to leave anybody there. Jesus didn't want to leave Thomas there. But he acknowledged where he was at so that he could take him to the next spot. Here's what I want to do. I want right now everyone to go ahead, uh, bow your heads, close your eyes for me. Just real quick. If you're just bold and courageous enough to be honest in this moment, and maybe you came in today and you're walking through some sort of season of anxiety, depression. Maybe it's not quite that, but you've had some significant trauma or tragedy in the, the recent past. Something that's just causing you to, to have a bunch of questions bubble up in your own heart. A bunch of doubts bubble up in your own heart. To be, to be completely honest, maybe some unbelief. I just want to ask, would you be courageous enough just to lift a hand to say, yeah, I'm, I'm in that spot. That's me. Would you just lift a hand right now? And as those hands go up, I'm just going to say a prayer. And just keep those hands up as I pray, as a sign of just receiving this prayer. Lord, more importantly than me seeing these hands, Jesus, I know you see them. You see multiple hands in the air right now in a very similar spot to your good friend Thomas. And Lord, if you had the patience for Thomas 2,000 years ago, we just ask right now that you would have the same patience for us. 
We just ask right now, Jesus, that the same way you invited Thomas over to see for himself, that you would, Lord, would you show up in this room and invite us over to see for ourselves? Would you prove to us, Jesus, that you are who you say you are? Would you show up in some kind of powerful way that only we would understand? Lord, we ask that the same way that you knew what Thomas needed without him asking, that you would know what we need without us asking. And Lord, we've already done the same thing Thomas did. We've shown up. We're present. We could have done anything else, been anywhere else today. We're present. So Jesus, would you come? Would you prove yourself to us in the near future? Because we need you. We have questions. We have doubts. We want to say with full confidence, my Lord and my God, I trust you. But there's something holding us back, so Jesus, come. You know what it is that we need. Would you come? We pray this in your name. Amen. So here's what we're going to do right now. You can respond uh, in one of two ways. First thing is I want to challenge some of you in the room. As you know, the Shepherd team has been available uh, multiple times at the end of different sessions. They're going to be available as well just on the outside here. And there might be some of you in the room that just need to go and have a conversation one-on-one. And I just want to challenge you to go and just share, confess. What are those doubts? What are those things that are holding you back? What are those questions that you have? What are those honest Thomas thoughts that you need to just get out in the open to say to a fellow believer? And so for some of you, I just encourage, if it feels like it might need to be a one-on-one conversation, I just ask that you would get up out of your seat when I walk off and just go and find somebody on the shepherd team to to share that with and to pray with. And for everyone else, if you don't feel like it's that one-on-one conversation, what I want you to do as soon as I walk off is I want you to just turn towards each other and get in groups of maybe three to four. And I just want you to simply just share, where are you actually at today? Like, none of this, like, oh, man, good. Like, everything's great. I got my niece's birthday party after. Woo! Like, none of that. Like, how are you really doing? If you're doing really well, that's great. And I'm not asking you to lie and say something hard. But I'm just asking for transparency, for authenticity, for honesty, to be courageous like Thomas and to share with somebody next to you how you're really doing. Because I have a feeling if we really do that, we'll all walk away very encouraged knowing it's not just me. It's not just me. So I'm going to ask you right now, go ahead and respond. If it's you that needs the one-on-one conversation, find someone on the outside. Other than that, have a conversation amongst each other for about 10 minutes, and Morgan will come to close us out at that time. Go for it. Thank you for listening to Feed the Sheep this week. May the Spirit be within you, may it be upon you to embolden you in your faith to go out and advance the gospel to build the kingdom and bless the world.